Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Well, this week, we're going to try to get through three verses. Last couple times, it's only been one or two, so we'll see if we make it. 1 Peter 5, we're going to look at verses 5 through 7. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you. Be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him for He cares for you. Let's pray. Father, as we explore these next several verses here in 1 Peter 5, we ask You just to Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Give us insight and understanding. And just as important, help us to make application uh, in our own lives. Lord, we thank you that you're the good shepherd who loves to feed your sheep. We ask you to feed us this morning from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First word here in verse 5, likewise. And so in the same manner as how he is in the last of the previous verses, addressed the elders. We started with that, with an exhortation to the elders of the local church. So in the same manner as the elders whom he has just exhorted to humbly oversee the flock of God. In verse 2 it says, Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Verse 3 not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So in, likewise, you younger people, in the same manner as he has just exhorted the elders, he now exhorts the younger people. So the elders typically would have been, and this is still true in the church today, older men, although Timothy, Paul's son in the faith was uh, um, relatively young as he entered uh, the ministry for, for being a senior pastor. It is believed that Timothy was somewhere in his 30s uh, when uh, he became a pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes to him in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And this was written sometime in the late 50s to mid-60s that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. And so Timothy was in his 30s, Paul at that point probably in his 60s. So again, typically addressing the elders, they would have been probably somewhat older. If you, if you look also in 1 Timothy and you look at the qualifications Paul lays out for an elder, a uh, husband of but one wife, this sort of thing. Elders were a little older, more established. They typically had wives and children. And so now he's exhorting the younger people. And what is he telling them? Submit yourselves to your elders. And this is probably a more important statement now than perhaps at any time in history because we've seen a radical change in the, the relationships between older people and younger people today. In times past, uh, there seemed to be more of a respect 
from younger people to older people, viewing them as wiser, more mature, more experienced. But in today's world, as I've said many times, we've become something of a youth cult where instead of the younger people aspiring to be like the older, the older people are aspiring to be like the younger by doing all kinds of things to look young, right? And uh, stay young. And a lot of that has to do with the fact when you don't know God and you don't know where you're headed when this life is over, if you have a secular, humanistic, Darwinistic, pagan point of view that there's nothing beyond this life, then you're going to cling to it for all that you're worth, right? There's such a freedom in knowing that this life is so temporary and really it's all about eternity and where are we going to spend eternity and in eternity we will all look young. (laughs) But, and again, as we know, when we're young, and I suspect this has always been the case because human nature never really changes, When we're young, we have a tendency to rebel against authority because we believe we know better, right? As young people, I mean. The older you get, the more you realize you don't know anything. And I've I've read about numerous great men of the faith, preachers, teachers, scholars, who have made similar comments that the longer they walk with the Lord the more they realize how little they really know. And, you know, the Apostle Paul, towards the end of his life, wrote that he was the chief of sinners. And so Paul did not reach a point in his life where he thought, man, I've finally arrived, I've got my act together, I don't ever sin anymore. No, as an older man, having walked with the Lord for many years, he says, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the greatest, I'm the biggest sinner there is. And that's humility, as Peter's talking about here. Humility, brokenness, realizing that in the light of God, His light shining upon our lives, and His Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. When He shines that light upon us, the brighter that light gets, the more we realize how vile, wretched we are and how hopeless it would be without Christ. So, in our youth, we tend to rebel against authority. We, we believe we know better. We, we're young and full of energy, enthusiasm, vision, motivation. We think the older folks have fallen behind the times and have run out of gas. And uh, a very graphic and recent example, and I've shared some of these things with you over the last few years, that towards the end of his life, there were those around Pastor Chuck Smith in Costa Mesa, uh, in fact, someone very close to him, who... Uh, were pretty vocal about their belief that Chuck's time had passed, that he was old school, old hat, behind the times, out of touch. And yet he maintained a vibrant ministry right up until his death, spawned some 1,600 churches all over the world, impacted the lives of millions of people, and now the church that he founded is a shadow of what it once was. So you tell me, was Pastor Chuck out of touch behind the times? He had a vision from God. He had an anointing and a gifting. And that doesn't go away with age. So we do need to respect our elders. As one commentator put it, 
He says this could refer to younger men in general. And not just men, of course, but younger people, men and women. Or, he says, it could be referring to the deacons in the church because the deacons were originally the younger men in the church because a position of a deacon, and you don't have to have a title. Many years ago, I heard a pastor say, you're only an elder if you eld. (laughs) Having a title doesn't make you an elder. Getting a title is just man's confirmation of what God has already done in your life. And you're only a deacon if you deke. And so the deacon, diakonos, it means minister or servant. And so the deacons would handle the, uh, kind of like the Levites in the Old Testament. You had the high priests, you had the priesthood, then you had the Levites who were also in the ministry, but they had a, a lesser role. They were servants. The deacons being subservient or submissive to the elders. The elders generally being older. So first of all, this commentator says, having exhorted the elders not to lord it over those committed to their care, Peter now turns to the deacons, urging them to submit cheerfully to the authority of the elders. And so there's a dual application. There's younger people in the church in general, and there are specifically those younger men in the church who may be serving, whether they have a title or not. I've found that many times you can ruin a really good person with a title. That's why we don't make a big deal out of titles here. We don't throw them around. It took me so many years to even get being used to being called Pastor Gary. I understand it's, I guess it's necessary, it's important just to establish that role in the church, but I'm never bothered when somebody just calls me Gary. So Peter, Peter now turns to the deacons, urging them to submit cheerfully to the authority of the elders. Then another commentator had this to say, respect for parents elders, and in Judaism, those more knowledgeable in the law was socially obligatory in antiquity. Some Jewish traditions regarded it as an expression of one's respect for God. And you've heard me say this many times as well. There's a direct connection between our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow human beings. You see the vertical and the horizontal? What does it form? A cross. But if someone is struggling with submitting to earthly authority, I can pretty much guarantee you they're not really submitting to God's authority either. They go hand in hand. Such respect included deferring to the wisdom of older men and allowing them to speak first. Are older men perfect just because they're older? No. But at the same time, when we get into this area of authority and submission, it's something that applies in every area of our lives. And that doesn't always mean that the person that we are required to submit to is more knowledgeable, smarter, or any of the above. It's just that when we obey God's word and we submit to him and we submit to those in authority, things will go well for us and he will bless us. So Peter takes it now to the next level, which is, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And so here he's addressing the entire body of Christ. So you have the elders who are to humbly shepherd the flock of God, not lording over them. Then you've got the younger people or the deacons in submission to the elders. But then within the church, mutual submission 
is one of the cardinal principles of Christianity. As you study the New Testament, you find so many scriptures replete with passages like the two that I'm about to read. First of all, Romans 12.10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Mutual submission. I'm preferring you. You're preferring me. That's humility. That is submission. And that's the example that Christ has set for us. And when we do that, we have a happy, healthy, harmonious church. Philippians 2.3 Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And of course, that never happens in the church, does it? Sadly, it does. And it's always harmful and it's always destructive. But in lowliness of mind, again, see, this flies in the face not only of secular humanism, secular psychology, secular philosophy, that everything's all about you. So we now live in the age of the selfie, right? The the Facebook and all of that, because it's all about me. And everybody needs to know it. No, the Bible talks about lowliness, humility, just the opposite of the way the world thinks. Which way do you think works better? God's way or the world's way? But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem... See, what is the world promoting? Self-esteem, right? Self-esteem. That's not what the Bible promotes. If you think you deserve the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for you, you've got a problem. You didn't deserve it. I feel like Obama now. You didn't build that. But in this case, it's true. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, God can do anything with someone who is broken and humble before Him. You can be a lowly nobody from nowhere with no education, no money, no nothing. But if you are broken and humble before God, He can do mighty things with you. Conversely, you could be somebody from somewhere with a lot of money. But if you're full of pride and arrogance, God can't use you at all. Now, you might be able to fake it, and there are people out there today faking it. They're just like a good salesman. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And that's a challenge because for those of us who have grown up in America, we were told our parents had good intentions. Some believers, some not believers. My parents were not practicing Christians. But as I've shared my testimony many times, my aunts, my grandmother, a large part of my family on my father's side, my father was a believer who fell away for many years and rededicated his life to the Lord a couple weeks before he died. But well-intentioned parents in 20th and 21st century America have told their kids growing up, you're great, you're the best, have confidence. And there's nothing wrong with building confidence into our children, but I think this false sense of our own greatness has really been a barrier to many people coming to Christ because until you realize what a total jerk you are, 
what a total sinner you are, how are you going to come to Christ? You have to be broken. You have to be humbled. To realize you need to confess your sins, you need to repent, you need to get saved. But if you're told your whole life how great you are, how wonderful you are, and it's gotten to the point today, when I was a kid, if you got in trouble at school, you got in trouble at home. And I was just talking to somebody the other day here in the school about the back in the days when we used to get SWATs. Now you'd be arrested. But you know what? When I was a kid, there were no shootings in school. There were no serial killers in schools. The biggest problems when I was a kid were chewing gum, spit wads, and talking in class. Now, again, you always had your hoodlums and your rogue elements. But, I mean, every day now we're having shootings in our schools. And, oh my goodness, but it's such a great world today because nobody gets spanked anymore. Nobody gets swats. And if a teacher gave a swat, they'd be arrested. And yet, again, we've deviated from the teachings of the Scriptures. Spare the rod and spoil the child. Wickedness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod will drive it far from him. And I'll be willing to guarantee you here today, there's a majority or at least a plurality of you sitting here who don't believe in corporal punishment for children because you've been brainwashed by this society, this devilish, heathen, worldly, satanic society that we live in has brainwashed everybody, including the Christians. Some of the greatest men and women this world have ever known have been subjects in their youth of corporal punishment. And not only do we not corporally punish our kids anymore, we don't corporally punish the adults. Why is rape and murder and all this stuff just gone through the roof? Because nobody gets punished for anything anymore. And that's also a lie that we're teaching people that there's no punishment for evil, there's no punishment for sin, when the Bible clearly says there's an eternity of punishment in hell. Why do you think it's so hard to lead people to Christ today? Well, first of all, they don't know about God or believe in God. Secondly, they've been taught their whole lives you can do whatever you want and get away with it. Houston, we have a problem. Try to get back down off the high horse now. Get on the low horse. Lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. And if you esteem others better than yourself, you won't be stealing from them and murdering them and raping them and doing all this stuff. If that person you're looking at, you deem them more valuable than you, everything's going to be okay. And if they're looking back at you and deeming them more honorably than themselves, see? But we live in a very selfish society today and even within the church. I would say vast portions of the church today are more pagan than they are Christian. Here he goes, Mr. Doomsday again. It is what it is. So the scriptures are replete with passages like this where the emphasis on putting others before yourself. And so Peter simply says, yes, all of you, be submissive to one another. Nobody ever got in a fight or an argument by being submissive to their brother or sister in Christ. When we have problems is when we get snotty with one another. 
and rude and put our own interests ahead of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's when the problems begin to arise and people get offended and churches shatter. And that's the devil's goal. The devil would like to shatter and destroy every God-fearing, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Scripture-teaching church in America and throughout the world. And he does it from within. Jesus said, a house divided against itself, what? Cannot stand. You see, persecution from outside makes the church stronger. We band together. We pull together. We pray together. But turmoil from within destroys the church. And so, some ministries have decided the best way to avoid turmoil from within is to be namby-pamby, wishy-washy, ooey-gooey and not preach the truth. Just walk softly and don't carry any stick at all. Ain't happening here. Yeah, but pastor, if you weren't so um, harsh and aggressive and You'd have a bigger church. Whoop-de-doo. Anybody can do that. Anybody can draw a crowd if it's namby-pamby, wishy-washy, ooey-gooey. Okay. And Peter, next comment here. For God resists. This is so important. God resists the proud. Boy, the devil's really been on my back lately. Really? Has he? Or do you have pride in your life and God is resisting you? Does anybody ever stop to ask that question? We always want to blame it on the devil, right? That's easy. Make him the scapegoat. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that is also echoed in James 4.6. And both James 4.6 and 1 Peter 5.5 5 are taken from Proverbs 3.4. I've been reading back through Proverbs lately and I'm telling you the, the wisdom there is just phenomenal, unmatched. I would encourage you to read through Proverbs and listen to it. Take it to heart. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace, as we all know, is God's unmerited favor giving us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve to be blessed by God, but when we enter into a love relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, we become recipients on an ongoing basis of His grace. Who does He give that grace to? The humble. He resists the proud, which means when we are prideful, God, listen to this now, God opposes us. That doesn't mean He takes away our salvation, but opposed to blessing, as opposed to blessing us, He will frustrate our efforts and distance Himself from us. Sin separates us from God. Pride is sin. In order to restore ourselves into right relationship, we have to humble ourselves before God, repent of our pride, confess our sins, and seek His forgiveness that our, our intimate relationship might be restored. 
Now you can go through life in pride, still be saved, and you may not even be aware that God is opposing you, but nothing ever seems to go right. And if it does go right, it's probably because the devil is helping you because you're full of pride. There's an old expression, you've heard me quote it before. If God seems far away, guess who moved? What did Jesus say? I will never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So if God seems far away, He's not the problem. You are. I am. Therefore, in light of these things, we had a likewise, even as he has just addressed the elders, now he addresses the young people, then the whole congregation. Therefore, in light of these things, since God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Again, at this point, he's speaking to everyone in the church, the body of Christ. In other words, what he's saying if you want God to bless you rather than oppose you, it would be wise to make humility a top priority in your life. Remember what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, 3 through 5. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He was on his way to Damascus to hunt down Christians and arrest them with the ultimate goal of killing them executing them. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's Jesus. This is the encounter that Paul had with the risen Christ that qualified him to be an apostle. And he said, Who are you, Lord? He didn't know who it was, but he knew it was the Lord because of what just happened. It's not anybody and everybody that talks to you from heaven. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads or the pricks. Now when you talk about various Bible translations, this is one of those sections where you will only find this last verse or this last sentence in the King James and the New King James, and yet it's so important. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad... It's a very formidable weapon, actually. It's an instrument used by plowmen for guiding their oxen. It's sometimes as much as 10 feet long. has a sharp point. There was a guy in the Old Testament, I want to say Shamgar, if I'm correct. Do you remember that, Robert? He slew a bunch of guys with a, a goat, a goat of an oxen. But it's used generally to prod the oxen. It has a sharp point. Oh, yeah, it is Shamgar. I've got here in my notes. <laughs> and so when Paul says it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, against the goad, it was proverbial for unavailing resistance to superior power. In other words, resistance is futile. If you remember that quote. You can't fight against God. And so God is... Uh, trying to poke and prod Saul, who becomes Paul, in the right direction. God's telling Saul, game over. You can't fight against me and win. And Paul became arguably the greatest of the apostles. 
humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Again, that reminder that God is all-powerful. You can't fight against Him and win because even if you fight against Him throughout your life and never ever yield your life to Him and you think, I've lived life on my own terms, I'm the master of my own ship, my own destiny. Well, yes, you are. And you know where you're going to wind up? Somewhere you don't want to go. You can't fight against God and win. Either you will yield to Him and come under His mighty hand, or you will refuse Him and wind up separated from Him for all eternity. And again, the fact that we are under His mighty hand reminds us of the humility that we are to have. You know, again, it's sad that through some bad teaching, some bad doctrine, there are a large group of Christians out there that think God is their servant. That He's to answer your beck and call and do your will and that you're pulling the strings. And that's a massive deception. Because if you're not under His mighty hand, you're in trouble. We must humble ourselves before Him, submit to Him, that He may exalt you in due time. Again, there's a dual application there because, again, everybody, every believer has some type of a calling on your life. And it could be to serve Him in a secular uh, vocation. It could be in a ministerial vocation. It could be in your workplace, your neighborhood, in the school. God wants to use every one of us in different ways, in different arenas of life. So that could be an exaltation in this life in due time, according to His plan, His purposes. But God's idea of exaltation is a lot different than ours. And the ultimate exaltation is when we see Him face to face. And so I've heard so many preachers over the years talk about the little grandmothers in the church that are intercessors, they're at home, they're constantly praying for people people behind the scenes not the visible ones necessarily and it's it's difficult because there's a part of us that desires exaltation in this life i want to be recognized i want to be appreciated i want people to notice me which really again is not biblical but it's part of that human nature that we have to fight against the flesh he will exalt us if we humble ourselves before Him now, the greatest exaltation is that which will come in eternity. And so oftentimes, perhaps those that we think of and see in this life as the mighty men and women of God, and there are many of them out there, wonderful servants of God. But it could very well be that when we get to heaven, we will find the people that nobody even knew about right up next to Jesus the prayer warriors, the intercessors, the people working behind the scenes that never get any notice or any attention. So let that be an encouragement to those of you here today or those watching. Maybe that's you. Maybe you fulfill a role in the church that gets very little recognition. We have a lot of wonderful servants in this church. And a lot of them don't get a lot of recognition. I'm the upfront public figure. 
But without them, none of this could happen. And you might not get exalted in this life. And that's okay because a lot of times, as I mentioned earlier, you can take a really good person and ruin them with a title. You can take a really good person and ruin them with recognition. So be grateful, be thankful if God is using you in a very low-key, subtle, behind-the-scenes way. Because the chances are very great that when we all gather together in His eternal kingdom, you are the ones that will be exalted above all others. I might have to bring my binoculars. And some of you will have front row seats. And you know what? It is what it is. I mean, God called me to do this and I got to do it. And God's reminded me more than once when I start to uh, feel sorry for myself and think about other ministries and how they seem to be flourishing and so forth. And God's reminded me more than once. He said, they're getting their reward here and now. I'm not saying they're not doing the right thing and I'm not saying God's not blessing them. But again, oftentimes we look at God's blessings in the temporal and we should be looking at them, at them in the eternal. And then finally, verse 7. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. And that's another thing that contributes to humility because when we're trying to handle it, it's okay, God, I got this one. That's actually pride. Oh, I don't need you here, God. I can, I can handle this. No, you can't. And even if you think you can, you can't. And even if you can, you shouldn't. You should always call upon Him. The Greek participle here is in the aorist tense, which means that it's an ongoing thing. We are to give our anxieties over to God once for all. And we've all done that, right? Have you given your anxiety over to God once and for all? I doubt it. But that's what we're supposed to do. In the, the New American Standard Bible, the New International Version, and the New Revised Standard Version, they all use this word, casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. So your cares are your anxieties, and we're supposed to give them all to God and leave them there. And when we do, again, things go really well. Can you imagine what life would be like if we really did what Peter is exhorting us to do here? Casting all of our anxieties upon God? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing. That's very convicting. Is there a day goes by that you don't get anxious about something? You lost your keys, you lost your wallet. You're late for an appointment. So forth. Problems your kids are having, your grandkids, other family members, friends. This is a big challenge. But it sure will go well when we listen to it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Oh, God doesn't want to be bothered with that. Really? He wants to hear from you. You're his kid. He loves you. Everything. And by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So it's always good when we go to God seeking help that we remind ourselves to pray for and thank Him for all the good things He's done for us, all the blessings. 
fact, oftentimes I find when I'm praying that I will go first to that to praise Him, to honor Him, to thank Him before I say anything else. Because I'm just wonderful. No. It's just that the Holy Spirit has shown me that I need to do that. Before I start whining about all the problems, start by thanking Him. And all of a sudden, a lot of the problems don't look so big after all. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. What's the matter with you, man? Why are you so calm? That guy just blew your leg off. Praise the Lord. Will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God. The heart and the mind, that's the whole battle right there. That's where the battle is won or lost. You know that? In the heart and in the mind, which in the Scriptures are interconnected. As a man thinks, so is he. Our hearts and our minds are interconnected, so God wants to guard your heart and your mind against the attack of the enemy, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But how does that happen? How do we get that protection? By humbling ourselves, giving all our anxieties over to God in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. I think we could easily make the case that the number one problem for people today is anxiety. The ultimate answer to this problem, please don't be offended now. These things have their place. But the ultimate answer is not psychotherapy or medication. It's the peace that surpasses all understanding. Medications wear off. Psychotherapy is expensive and ongoing. People have been in psychotherapy for 10, 20, 30 years. It's great for the psychotherapist. They keep getting a paycheck. That's one of the reasons you don't ever seem to get better. Because if they tell you you're cured, you don't need to come back, they don't get a paycheck anymore. Would you agree with me that that is the ultimate answer? The peace that surpasses all understanding. And it comes by casting all of our cares upon Him. All of our anxieties. Being anxious for nothing. Why should we cast all our anxiety on God? For He cares for you. Literally, you could translate this, it matters to Him concerning you. What does the devil go around telling people all the time? All over the world. God doesn't care about you. You don't matter. You're not important. No, the scriptures tell us it matters to him concerning you. Now, if we're fortunate and we're blessed, we have people around us that care about us, but some people don't. Some people feel like they don't. But if no one else cares, we can bank on this. God cares. And sadly, sometimes he's the last person we go to. And yet he's the first person we should go to. More than anyone else, mom, dad, sister, brother, husband, wife, son, daughter, God truly, genuinely cares about us. Unconditional love. Asking for, expecting nothing in return for His love. How do we know this? John fifteen thirteen. Greater love, Jesus says, has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. How do we know that God loves us and cares about us more than anybody or anything? 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world. What did He do? He sent us a Hallmark card. He texted us. Love you, man. No, He sent His only Son to die on the cross. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I think it's amazing and yet it's sad at the same time that contained within these anointed, powerful, supernatural words of God in the Scriptures lies everything that we need to know and to do in order to live joyful, peaceful lives here on earth. And yet, for the most part, I think very few fully benefit from the multitude and myriad blessings that He's promised us. But in order to be recipients of the wonderful promises of God, we must learn to submit to Him and to one another, laying down all pride, envy, jealousy, covetousness, rebellion, and all that other bad stuff. And I'm just going to close with these lyrics from a great old hymn, Trust and Obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, this sounds a little different than some of the new music, When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Here's your chorus. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Next verse. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but His smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear Not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Then you go back to the refrain. But now the next verse. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay for the favor he shows for the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey then in fellowship sweet we will sit at his feet or will walk by his side on the way what he says we will do where he sends we will go never fear only trust and obey Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father God, what tremendous words we've received today from Peter and from the other passages that we have explored together. Lord God, we know if we will take them to heart, if we will not just hear them, as James says, that we're not to be hearers only, but to be doers. Lord, we know that this is where the value comes, not just from hearing but from doing, from applying these words to our own lives. Lord, we know that when we do, things will go well for us. They will go well for those near and dear to us. And we will have a happy, healthy church as we lovingly submit to one another and deem each other better than ourselves, esteem each other better than ourselves. 
Lord, we ask you to help us. This is a struggle. We confess. Everything within us wants to put ourselves first. To focus on me. To make our lives one big selfie. But Lord, it's not about us. It's about you. And it's about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's about shining your light in a lost world. We pray today, God, that you would help us to take these truths with us and allow them to sink deep within our hearts and minds. And Lord, for those of us who need to repent, and it's probably every one of us, of our pride, Lord, please forgive us today. Help us to be humble before you and willingly submit ourselves to be under your mighty hand and to be in submission to one another. Father, as we close now with our final song, please receive our offering of worship. And we pray that you would draw those today by your Spirit who need prayer, who need to be up here, confessing, repenting, or just seeking, casting all their cares, their anxieties upon you, whatever it might be. Need for physical health and strength. Financial provision. Lord, we know you have everything we need. As we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, you promised that all these things will be added unto us. Lord, we pray your blessing upon this final song of worship and upon the ministry time now as people come for prayer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.